Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Justin Verrier from The Ringer in just a little bit. You know him from The Ringer's NBA feed as well, part of the group chat pod that comes out usually every Wednesday. So we'll chat with him in just a little bit and get into the Celtics. But where I want to start is with the Patriots, because what we had is something completely unprecedented this week from the Patriots organization, where they actually release a statement saying this, quote, The New England Patriots and head coach Bill Belichick have begun contract extension discussions with Gerard Mayo that would keep him with the team long term. In addition, the team will begin interviewing for offensive coordinator candidates beginning next week. When have we ever seen this before? The Patriots are telling us they're going to interview offensive coordinator candidates and they don't have a contract done with Gerard Mayo. Gerard Mayo's contract is up after this season, so it's up right now. They don't have that contract done. They're telling us right now they're not announcing, hey, We've got the contract done for Gerard Mayo. No, no, no. What they're telling us is they're working on trying to get a contract done with Gerard Mayo, which is just fascinating. We never see anything like this from a Patriots perspective where they're announcing things they're trying to do. We're trying to get this done. We're interviewing guys for the offensive coordinator position, but that's where we're at right now. And so now that I've had a few days to sort of sit back and kind of digest this whole situation, it's still so bizarre to me, right? But this is what makes Robert Kraft a great owner from my perspective. When he realizes that he needs to step in, he does. Right now, he is stepping in, right? So let me get to first the Mayo portion of this equation and the statement they released. So Phil Perry reported that he canceled this interview with the Carolina Panthers for their head coaching gig. So to me, this is obviously great news from a Patriots perspective, and it reminds me of 2018, after the 2017 season, where Josh had landed the gig with the Indianapolis Colts, right? And then Kraft went above and beyond to make sure that Josh stayed here, right? Now, maybe part of that is from what Robert was thinking was, well, hey, the relationship with Bill and Tom is not great right now, okay? So we kind of need that buffer, and that buffer being Josh McDaniels, okay? But the bottom line is they needed to keep Josh here. Kraft realized the importance of keeping Josh McDaniels around because of the Brady-Belichick relationship, because of the relationship that Josh and Brady had not just off the field, but on the field, like the chemistry those two guys had working together, and he wanted to keep that going. And look at this coaching staff, right? You think about it right now. It's Patricia, it's Joe Judge, 
It's Steve Belichick, all with big jobs. And look, Steve Belichick has done a good job. I don't mean to like put him in the same conversation as Patricia and Joe Judge, who completely suck at their jobs. But you get my point. Like, these are the guys that are here with big jobs right now. Mayo, we know, was heavily involved in the game planning, and he's regarded as a tremendous leader, and he's well-regarded in the coaching circles. There's a reason he's getting interviews again, or he was getting requested again. Remember last year, he finished runner-up to the Denver job, and I'm sure Denver right now would have rather had Gerard Mayo than Nathaniel Hackett, who they had to fire. But you get my point. So essentially what this is, it's Kraft saying, hey, we can't lose this guy. We need to keep Gerard Mayo. So, hey, our defense was good last year, right, from a Patriots angle here. They had a good defense. So he's saying, okay, the players love Mayo. We can't let him leave, especially if it's just for another defensive coordinator position, right? Because I get he doesn't technically have the title and Steve's calling the plays and all that. But you can't have him leave to be a defensive coordinator somewhere else where he's just an assistant, right? So this is also, too, a possible successor for Bill. And quite frankly, I don't think Bill will have any sort of problem with Kraft doing all he can to keep Mayo around, right? Because even if he gives him or even if he doesn't get the D.C. title, it's not like Steve isn't going to be calling plays next year. Why would they switch that? It worked for them from a defensive perspective, right? I'm guessing what the title he gets is associate head coach. But I don't think Bill's going to have a problem with this, right? Because he drafted Mayo. He was a captain for Bill. And Bill got Mayo out of broadcasting. Remember, he was working for NBC Sports Boston. So it's not like this isn't a guy that Bill won't be happy for, that he's getting sort of a promotion. And Bill obviously realizes the importance of him within the organization that they need to keep him here. So I don't think this ruffles any feathers with Bill. And Kraft saw how much losing Josh McDaniels hurt the offensive game planning this past season, right? And the execution. And yeah, Steve does the play calling defensively. But Mayo, as we alluded to, he's so heavily involved in the game planning and running meetings, you can't lose that guy because even though you're better suited from a personnel perspective and you have a good play caller in Steve Belichick on the defensive side of things, it's a fear of losing another an elite assistant like you just lost with Josh McDaniels, right? It, would it be similar? Like Kraft's going to be asking himself, like, look what happened when we lost Josh to our offense. Okay, this is an elite coach we have on the defensive side of the football. What happens if we lose him, right? And look, Josh is not a proven head coach, but he's an elite assistant coach. We don't know if Mayo is going to be a great head coach. I think he's probably going to be based on the track record and how everybody loves the guy, right? But he's an elite assistant. We do know that. And Kraft stepped in. And he said, we can't lose this guy. So that's huge that they're keeping Drod Mayo here, that they're getting this thing done because they can't afford to keep losing good coaches. They just lost Josh. You cannot lose Drod Mayo. So I love that Kraft did this. Okay. The second reason that he needed to step in there and needed to do something is they needed to make a change offensively. So that statement tells you, hey, we're going after an offensive coordinator. We need this crazy thing called a real offensive coordinator. And I love the Kraft because you know Kraft's behind the statement. I mean, come on. You know that Kraft was embarrassed this year. And look, from Tommy Curran's report, Bill was amenable to the changes in terms of the ideas going forward. But someone had to push Bill in this direction. And Kraft's is the only guy that can, right? Because Bill isn't going to listen to anybody but Kraft. Kraft is his boss. And think about it if you're Kraft, right? This is embarrassing. Kurt Warner, Dan Orlovsky, former NFL quarterbacks now at totally different levels. Kurt Warner, great quarterback. Dan Orlovsky, not a good quarterback. But nonetheless, they both have big presence. They both have big presences in the media. And they're out here on Twitter all the time and on TV and on the radio bashing the offensive coordinator for the Patriots. That has to be embarrassing for Robert Kraft. It wasn't that his team was bad. It was that the team was an embarrassment. Patricia was a punchline across the league, and Bill made that decision. His team that he owns, remember, Robert Kraft owns this team, took a step back because his coach made a bad decision. Think about how embarrassing that Chicago game must have been for Robert. Like, what the fuck is my coach doing? He found a way to ruin two quarterbacks in one game. Mac was broken for weeks on end after that. And Zappi never really played again. And he played poorly in that game after the whole situation. The home crowd was booing the quarterback that the Patriots selected 15th overall less than two years ago, right? And that's happening at your stadium, at Robert Kraft Stadium. Brutal. So Robert had to do this, right? And I think there has to be some real frustration with Kraft right now, right? Because he puts his trust in Bill because of his resume, and he was doing it differently. Remember what Robert said at the owner's meeting last year, quote, and this is when he was being asked all these questions where he didn't have titles to the coaching staff. Robert said, I think Bill has a unique way of doing things. 
it's worked out pretty well up to now. I know what I don't know, and I try to stay out of the way of things that I don't know. That's what Robert said about the coaching staff. So Robert doesn't want to meddle anymore based on the whole Parcell situation years ago, right? But it got to the point where he had to. So Robert, what has to kill him is he said, okay, Bill, we can do it your way. You do it your way. I trust you. And what happened? He failed miserably. So Bill left Robert with no choice but to step in this time around. And to the point where they release a statement, that was Kraft taking back his teaming, saying this shit is not acceptable and changes are going to happen fast and furious. And he wants the entire fan base to know, hey, we're not doing this again. We're fixing it. And look at the results that you got last year in terms of the Patriots offense. If you just look at some of the numbers, they scored on 32.8% of their drives last year, 23rd. The year before that number was at 48%. That was second in the entire NFL. Okay, so you went from being a really good offense, a good offense to one of the worst in the league, and it all happened. Why? Because of the decision that Bill made. And the quarterback took a step backwards in every way. And then there's the whole free agency thing, right? Remember what Robert said. This was to The Athletic last March. I hope that some of the free agents who we brought in who didn't perform as high as we would have liked last year will produce this year because they've adjusted the system, okay? That's a direct quote from Robert Kraft. He thought that the Patriots, this offensive coaching staff that Bill sold him on, hey, it's going to work. And remember, Robert trusted him because Bill has done things differently for 20 years. He thought that these guys are going to be better. Bill actually sold that to Robert and he bought it. Hey, these guys are going to be better in the new system. Think about how crazy that quote looks right now. Think about that. The Patriots just had one of the worst offenses in the NFL The owner thought that the coach was going to get more out of the players because the system was changing. The system sucked. Think about this, the tight ends, right? Fully guaranteed money for tight ends. Jonu, 31.2 million second. Hunter Henry, 25 million fifth, okay? If you look at receptions among tight ends this year, Henry had 41, Jonu had 27. That's 41 receptions for Henry. That was tied for 21st and Jonu was 38th. So if you just take those numbers and you combine them, what, it's 68 receptions combined. The combined cap hit this year for those two players, $23.4 million. Between those two guys, you got a grand total of 68 receptions for $23.4 million against the cap. Well, what's that, like $1.8 million per reception? I mean, that's how bad that contract was. Henry's cap hit next year is 15.5. And then you look at Janu's, his is going up to 17.4 because of the restructure. So you're looking at those two players against the cap next year, $32.9 million. Aguilar, another guy that Robert was hinting at where he said, we hope guys can have bigger seasons this year, to paraphrase the quote I gave you, because of the system change. How'd it work for Aguilar this year? Uh, Not very good. And you know what he made against the cap? $14.9 million. 103 qualified receivers. He was 80th in targets with 50, 89th in yards at 362, 64th in yards per reception, and 85th in receptions with 31. So this is the whole problem, right? Robert bought this. He thought that this is going to work because Bill convinced him changing the system was going to get more to these free agents. So Robert supports Bill's decision. He believes the players will be better. Both quotes now from Robert look horrible. He was wrong on both of them. So now he's saying, hey, I want a real coordinator, Bill. I'm paying all this dough for these guys. You told me you're going to be better. It didn't work. Your plan was not good. (laughs) These guys did jack shit. Your way didn't work. I supported your vision. I'm paying the most money for tight ends and receivers in the NFL last season, and our offense was one of the worst, basically in every statistical metric, including if you look at the red zone, they were the worst in the NFL. You need help, and I'm getting you help, and you're going to accept the help I'm giving you. And I think every Patriots fan right now should appreciate what Robert Kraft is doing. This was a badass move by the owner because he's like, you know what? He deserved to have his chance build it to make sure that everything worked and he could do it his way. But the problem is this. The six Super Bowls, great. Everybody's appreciative of that. But what just happened was unacceptable. And I gave you a chance, okay? You told me it was going to work. It didn't work. Well, it's time to change. That statement that came out that the Patriots released, we never see stuff like that. I give Robert Kraft, and I've criticized Kraft in the past before, I give Kraft a ton of credit for this. We're saying no more of this, okay? This is my team. I'm paying you, Bill. Your way isn't working. We are making huge changes because what just transpired was unacceptable. And the problem is this for Bill. It was so predictable. Every single person knew it wasn't going to work except Bill Belichick. And Robert Kraft decided, you know what? I trust this guy. I believe in this guy. I've seen him do it time and time again. 
and he got burned for it. He's not having that shit happen again. I love what Robert Kraft did this week, and I love that he released this statement because there's no going back now. You have to hire the offensive coordinator. You have to keep Gerard Mayo. There's no going back now. Love that the Patriots did this. Huge move by Robert Kraft, taking back his football team from Bill Belichick. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat about the C's with Justin Verrier from The Ringer. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Ringer and the group chat pod in the NBA feed is Justin Verrier. Verrier, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. So, hey, let's start with Tatum because he's been in the MVP conversation pretty much all season. Over 30 a night. The thing I love is in the third, he took over against Charlotte. But also on the season, you look at it, the free throws are up. He's at 8.4 compared to 6.2 last year. I guess the only thing you could critique is the three-point shooting's down again this year, 34 point five percent but what have you noticed this year that's been different with Tatum than say even last year when he was a first team all NBA guy yeah I think it's two things the one thing that I've always been keeping track of is just the aggressiveness and that's probably the one thing most people are really tracking with him is like how much is he really driving to the basket and how much is he drawing the contact and I think you could see this season and even last season you started he started to trend up in that way. But this season really feels like he has figured out that last bit of superstardom that everyone needs, which is to be, be basically be able to manufacture points, right? And he's over eight. He's not in that elite territory right now. He's not prime James Harden. But I think he has all those little things plus this now where you could see him scoring in a variety of ways. And then obviously the other part is just the playmaking. I mean, they're pretty much running the team through him and Jalen Brown. And last year it worked. It clearly worked. Uh, but you saw kind of the pitfalls of that, especially in the playoffs. Now it just seems like not only with him, but Smart as a connector, Brogdon as a connector, that whole theory of we are going to do this without a pass first point guard, without a Chris Paul type, I think it works now better than it ever has before. And I think you have to credit Brown to a certain extent, though it's been a little dicey at times, but Tatum in particular. Yeah, it's a good note on Tatum because even if like he's had some big assist games lately, right? Like the Mavericks, he had the triple double, which I don't think that was a coincidence that he did that in Lucas house. I thought that was kind of funny that he did that, but he had a seven assist game, but it's almost like he's become much better at like reading the defense, right? Like he's almost anticipating when the double's coming and he gets the ball out. He's much better handling the ball in a pick and roll situation. Like he's got that pass too, where he'll throw it back to the other wing. So I think it's just like, it's been like a whole, I don't know if it's he goes back to the lab with Drew Hamlin in the summer, but it's like every year it seems like there's one or two things that he emphasizes and usually he gets better at it. So I give him a lot of credit for that. But then you look at his whole his whole case in the MVP. Where would you have him right now? Would you have him behind Luka and Jokic? So when we talked about this about two weeks ago on Group Chat and then in other places, I had Tatum one in part because the Celtics are leading in the standings. And I think that should be a big factor, especially when there are so many guys who have credible cases you can make. I feel like last year was a particularly thick race, but this year somehow is even worse where like are are better, I guess, in terms of like you have more candidates. I think you can go five deep and like even Durant, like if he only misses a month, I think you have to factor him in Jokic, obviously and bead, which we didn't even talk about. Um, I think it kind of depends on where the Nuggets and the Mavs finish in the standings. I think Luka only really has a shot if Mm. he can get the Mavs into the top four in the West, if only because the whole heliocentric thing, clearly he takes on a huge burden, but they also have to play that way because that's kind of his style of play. And I think it offends a lot of people, so he'll probably won't get a lot of votes for that reason. And then Jokic, I think you're going to get voter fatigue um, honestly, I would probably have that same fatigue just because Jokic, if he wins three in a row, we're talking historic Larry Bird, Moses Malone territory. And uh, for a guy who hasn't made it to the finals yet, I think it's going to be a tough sell. Uh, so I would honestly put Tatum in the pole position with the voters. Uh, I would probably, if you're saying just based on like who I would give it to based on the quality of the performance right now, I would say Doncic with an asterisk that that team has to keep winning on a consistent and high level for that to continue. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, people here would be so pissed off if Jokic gets it and Tanev in his second. I forgot about that. What was it? 84, 85, 86, right? I mean, that's the last time somebody's won three in a row, which is crazy to think about it. And it was Larry Bird. So that would be interesting if Jokic gets the nod over Tatum and it's the first guy to do it since Larry Bird. All right. So Jalen's been dealing with this little abductor injuries, miss the last two games. But if you look at him on the season, the thing that sticks out to me is so He's already made 83 pull-up twos. Last year, he made 90. He's shooting 52.5% on pull-up twos, 43.7 last year. So that ability to just stop on a dime and pull up has stuck out to me all season. He did it a bit in the postseason, too. Like He had all these turnovers, but he was a ridiculous shot maker in the postseason. So that's been a, another thing that he added to the game this year that's been even better. But the one thing lately, like the past two weeks that's jumped out to me, Verrier, is... He's so good, like, dealing with contact. And if you just look at him, he almost looks, like, more jacked somehow than he was <laughs> a season ago. But have you noticed that, like, guys are just, like, bouncing off him this year? Yeah, I mean, the whole team seems like they've just been doing curls, like, in between games. Like, Tatum <laughs> is, is huge, too. Um, but, yeah, no, Brown is honestly probably one of the most dramatic developmental cases we've seen in, in recently in the NBA. And it doesn't seem like that. Just because he's so athletic, you would kind of think that he isn't the same type of, let's say, a Siakam who like really went from low level first rounder to all NBA guy. I mean, Brown was still a high draft pick. You don't really see him talked about in, in the same kind of breath as that. But like if you look at the guy who came into the league, who was all athleticism, uh, no dribbling. But, you know, I don't know how much he's developed there. Uh, but like. He's steadily improved one part of his game pretty much every season to the point where he's one of the best two-way wings in basketball. And honestly, he's probably been better offensively than he's been defensively, which hasn't been the case in recent years when we thought of him as just like the do-everything Swiss, Swiss Army knife on, on the defensive end. He just seems like he's gotten everything together. I, I mean, I don't want to keep dinging him for the dribbling stuff and, and the turnovers, which I think are at a career high at this point. Uh, I, I do feel like that's still a huge part of this that he needs to figure out and it's tough because I think the team as a whole needs him to really tighten that up to to be as dangerous as they could be in the playoffs but yeah he, he's like right behind Tatum in terms of like just developing every aspect of, of like a five tool skill set yeah and they both seem like it, Tatum less so lately just because the season's gone on but Jalen is like permanently pissed this year like he's he's always <laughs> like after he scores saying I'm him like he's he's been so mad the entire season so with Jalen out against Charlotte, Derek White ends up going down. He had like a neck strain. We'll see how long he's out. But so Brogdon ends up having 30 points. And it's the first time this month he went over the 30 minute threshold. Like what we've seen. And I've actually at times been kind of irritated with Missoula, like the game against Brooklyn on Thursday, he played so well. And I'm like, why isn't he in the closing lineup? So I am wondering if this is sort of like their strategy with Brogdon all year, where we know he has all this injury history in his past. He said that he can't really be a 35 minute guy anymore. Like he legitimately admitted that before the season. So I'm wondering if do you think when they get into the postseason, Missoula will be willing to go over that 30 minute mark more often because it does seem like they're really trying to stay away from that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing to have as an option, you know, that the guy coming yeah. off the bench could easily slot into uh, a closing five lineup and you wouldn't skip a beat. I, I do think like that's one of the underrated things somehow of their success in the early seasons is that like they could honestly be better if they just ramped up some minutes for key guys. I mean, Robert Williams is a huge part of that. I'm sure we'll talk about him at some point here, but like he's just getting into the starting lineup. Uh, Al, they've been pretty careful with throughout Brogdon, another guy. They've been able to basically bring guys along slowly in the way that like, let's say a Lakers cannot. You need to play LeBron James as much as humanly possible, whereas the Celtics are just so freaking deep and they've even got incredible minutes from some of these like projects off the bench, like Sam Hauser. Like I saw Davidson in the game <laughs> against uh, the yeah. Hornets. I know it was was like garbage time and whatnot, but like Cornette, they have all of these guys who could soak up to five to ten minutes that you've been able to bring along a Brogdon and hope that he can be the guy that you want him to be in the playoffs. And I think that he's really filled that slot, and he did it pretty quickly. Honestly, in a way that I, I I wasn't expected because you you heard so much about like, well, is this guy gonna want to be sixth seventh man off the bench? Is 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 he really going to be able to slot behind some of these younger guys? Uh, and I feel like he's settled into the perfect role for him and for this team. Where like, yeah, he can score thirty points, but honestly, if you get fifteen from him in every, any given game, I think that's fine for the regular season. 
Yeah, and last night he said again after the game, he's like, I'm not the guy here. I get a lot of <laughs> shots of the catch and shoot variety. Like, it really does seem like he's gone. This is like the fourth time I've heard him like talk about this. Like, he's gone out of his way to like say, like, I'm not the guy anymore. Like, he's fine with his role. He just wants to win a championship. And when he first said it when he got here, I'm like, I don't know. A lot of guys will say that, but <laughs> it's actually like been true. Like, if you just watch him play this year, that he seems to be fine with it. I mean, if I was him, I'd be pissed a lot that I'm not in the closing lineup half the time, but. Hey, I guess it's it's working for the team, so he's not going to like cause a fuss or anything. But you mentioned Rob. So last night on one possession against Charlotte, he had like three offensive rebounds. He ends up with six for the game. And it's just it's something they didn't have when he was out. Right. Like if you look at like the on off stuff, like the offensive rebounding percentage with him on the floor would be like seventh best in the NBA with him off the floor. It'd be worse than last in the NBA. Like they don't get offensive rebounds. And we talk so much about like his defense and the impact that he has on that end. But I really do feel like, for lack of a better term, he's sort of like supercharged this offense coming back because they're getting extra opportunities and they didn't really have a lob threat, right? Like from a big man perspective. I mean, obviously on the break and stuff, but they didn't really have that guy. So I do feel like in a weird way, he's actually helped their offense more than their defense since he's came back because they were going through this really bad stretch offensively where they couldn't hit anything and having that guy that they can just throw the ball up to seems to be helping them. Yeah, when they were really surging at the beginning of the season, I think the one thing you would hear among a few other things, but the, the most prominent thing was the offensive rebound percentage, right? Like they just were dead last, I think, in the league at some point. And then Rob comes back and they're still pretty bad, but I, I, I think they're credible now. And I think part of that is just like Al Horford is pretty much a spot up shooter at this point in his career. We'll see what happens, like maybe in the playoffs, maybe he's just saving himself like he is with Brogdon. But like you really are counting on Rob to be that guy to clean things up, to start the break. And like you even saw it when he was on the second unit that he was sparking a lot of fast breaks for a team that can, that has the athletes to get out of a run. Like, yeah, you have Al, you have some of these other guys that are a little bit more plotting, but like he fits that idea a little bit better. And so I could, I could see it. I, I mean, I'm personally really excited to see how good of a defense they could be with full-time Rob Williams in there, just because you saw in last year's postseason that like he was probably one of the biggest dif- difference makers in the entire postseason playing against like the Steph Curry's of the world and whatnot. Like when he was on the floor, he was swinging the game. And so if they can get prime Rob into a team that was already leading the league in a variety of car- categories, chief among them, just record like this team could be very scary. Yeah, I, he was so good in the finals last year. And that's when he like finally got healthy. I still have no idea why they brought him back for the Nets series. Like, you're going to win that series. Just wait. Give him time. Because then in the Milwaukee series, they get into that series and they got to sit him in certain games because the knee wasn't responding. It was just a complete mess. And when he finally got back to himself, it was just a game changer for this team. All right. So I want to ask you this. It's going to sort of irritate some Celtics fans. So there is a statistical case to be made for it, and there's actually an eye test case to be made for it. Now, he obviously got hurt last night, but is Derek White a better defender than Marcus Smart? Oof. It's a tough one. I mean, he's bigger, so he, he definitely adds the versatility there. I haven't looked at the numbers, so the numbers suggest that White is, is better than Smart. Well, just like so, like the like the isolation stuff, he's way better than Marcus this year. And you could say, look, Marcus is probably covering a better player most of the time. And like the on-off stuff, like favors Derek White. Like <laughs> the net rating with him on the court is ridiculous too. But yeah, there is a statistical argument to me. And he's like, I believe he's still tied for number one amongst guards for shot blocks. He was at 41 entering last night with tied for with Shea Gilgis Alexander. He didn't have one last night, but he went out so early. Yeah, I mean, Smart is so good at so many things, but he's just, he has to overcome, like, basically being like a, a small ball center at times, like in this lineup, uh, at the height of, you know, like a, a pass first point guard. It, it's just tough because he's always going to be at a disadvantage where White just has the body type, the lateral quickness you want in a, a go-to wing three and D wing defender in this league. And you're seeing what he's able to do when he has three or four of those guys to play off of. I could see it. Although it's, it's tough to really ding smart. I mean, the, the def- defensive player of the year he won last year, I have to say was, was pretty fraudulent. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the fan base thinks, but like clearly like Rob was the better defender <laughs> on his team. And like, I probably would have voted for Jaron Jackson last year, but most smart is clearly like all defense caliber, like awesome defender. Um, but at the same time, like he's, he's had such a like great year 
being everything this team needs to be primarily on offense that like i can't ding smart too much you know yeah no people were mad that like so many people in the national media were saying that i didn't quite frankly <laughs> i didn't think he deserved it either and if there was i'm with you i think robert williams if there was a guy on the celtics that should have got it i mean the impact that he makes obviously and it's nothing against smart it's like the big man is just going to have a way bigger impact on that side of the floor than marcus smart can have but how about grant williams this year right so he's still shooting the three at a high level he's actually done a much better job like getting to the basket and finishing this year i'm just wondering like do you think they're going to be able to keep this guy like i feel like he's like think about what he does he can shoot threes now he can actually like legitimately drive closeouts he can defend multiple positions including like he can defend Giannis at a high level for defending Giannis. like not many people can body up with them I just feel like he's going to be a very valuable player this offseason. Obviously, the Celtics can match any deal, but it feels like he's getting really expensive. Yeah, I think that was a really smart move by him. And like, I think he's the type who probably would have bet on himself regardless just because of the type of guy he was. But he's also the type of player I think every team needs in order to make some of this small ball work. Like everybody wants a Draymond type, but like it's really, really, really hard to find a Draymond type, let alone someone who could shoot like 40 plus percent from three-point land, um, I think he can make a lot of money on the open market. And honestly, I think that is probably the biggest question the Celtics face going into the trade deadline, where like, yeah, you could, in theory, just waste, burn another first-round draft pick, maybe add some depth to this team, ensure that like maybe Rob Williams, you have like a go-to third center that's better than Cornette uh, in order to make sure that this window you have this season you take advantage of. On the other hand, you probably want to keep some of these draft picks around because a lot of the guys that you're you're counting on, these young guys, developing guys in the background, are starting to get pretty pricey pretty soon. I mean, Grant's pretty much the last rotation guy, I think, that isn't on uh, an adult NBA contract at this point. And so I think you really need to weigh like that plus like your long-term future. And 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 I know Brad recently has gone toward the win now vets and hasn't cared as much about some of the young play or just like draft picks and in, in, in just building that way. On the other hand, like I, I think now you have to start thinking really deeply about the balance of that. If that makes sense. Yeah. It, it's, it's crazy. Like they almost have too many good players that they have to all get paid. <laughs> and it, it is good that they locked up like a lot of these guys long term, but yeah, you're right. Grant's like the last guy that hasn't been paid. It, it Brad's position has been fun to watch too. It's like, he's just decided, you know what? He's, made a lot of really nice trades. When we talk about White, we talk about Brogdon dumping Kemba's contract. I don't think he envisioned Al giving him this level of production that they got, but they got Al back. He's just decided like he's bowing out of the draft. Like I'm, I'm just not going to draft anybody. I'm just going to use all my draft picks. So do you think the Celtics, you think they'll add like a little piece then? Like, I, I, cause I can't see them moving like one of their rotation pieces. I mean, I guess if you consider Pritchard like fringe rotation, but I don't know what you're getting for Pritchard. Like, I, I don't know. Like he, I feel bad for him. Like he could get playing time on like most teams in the league, but I, I don't really know what they have. Like it's going to sound kind of arrogant from a Celtics perspective, but I don't really know what they need. Yeah. It's tough because they are so deep, but at the same time, they're counting on guys who have had injury issues in the past. Like Rob is, is probably the prime example. And like even Al, like 36 years old, Al's still giving them what they need. And I agree. I thought that was a really shrewd trade by Brad at the time. I definitely didn't love it because I thought it was the uh, prime example of uh, a former coach bringing his old guy back. And like, even though despite his age, like just trying to shore up the locker room, it seemed like it hit all the beats that you didn't want from uh, an executive, but it's worked out. I just like, I don't know. Like, I I think you could also probably maybe get more like a wing who could maybe soak up some of the Hauser minutes. And then you have that. Pritchard, as you mentioned, like he stepped in against the Hornets and was fine. So it really is a question of, do you think you need to take advantage of this window this season just because you are so good and you want to make sure that your odds are as good as possible versus suggesting, well, we have a couple years of some of these guys. Uh, Let's just like play for the long road. I think think the Jalen Brown situation might also factor in here too. It's like, do you think not next season, but the season after Brown is going to be a flight risk, even though you could pay him more than anybody else. And if you do, do you try to take advantage of the two years with him? And if like, if you're planning for his exit, you probably need to start planning for that next season. And so is this the one season, you know, for sure that all of that noise isn't going to filter in your title run. So like, maybe you go out and get like a 
Chris Duarte or someone like that, just to, just to make sure that this is your window. Yeah, and with Jalen too, like he could be on an All NBA team. Like he could become Supermax eligible like really shortly here. And look, maybe giving him the Supermax will help with like all the uh, trade rumors he's been in the past. So be like, oh yeah, forget <laughs> about that when you <laughs> when you give me the Supermax. All right, Barrier. So before I let you go, I want to get your take just like because I know you cover the league in general. So like the four other teams sort of in the East, Brooklyn, obviously they don't have Durant right now, but he's going to be back. Philadelphia with Doc, although we'd like to see Doc in the playoffs just because he's been really bad playoff coach. (laughs) And then you think about Cleveland and obviously Giannis and the Bucks. How many of those teams do you see as real legitimate threats to the Celtics? Is it two of the four? Is it all four? Is it three of the four? I think it's all four are legitimate threats. I I do think that this could come down to those four and matchups. I mean, some people might throw Cleveland in there. I I think that's a little too soon. I think they're a year away and probably one or two players away from being very serious threats. But they do strike me as the type of team that if you had to face them in the first round, like you could be going more games than you'd like if you're in a six or seven game series trying to score against Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, like, is that going to put you in worse position to go against the Nets in the second round sort of thing? So I think there's someone to keep an eye on, but I would favor the Celtics in, I think, all of those matchups at this point. I really don't have a finger on the pulse of the Bucks at this point. They're probably the scariest team, but at the same time, the Celtics have probably improved not dramatically, but markedly since their last meetup with them last year. Whereas I think the Bucks with Chris Middleton out and not finding another scoring source probably are facing the same sort of issues in a series that they faced against the Bucks last time or against the Celtics last time. So, like, you could be in a situation where it's like, up oh, Grant Grant Williams is hitting a bunch of threes. Who's going to match him as a fourth or fifth scorer? And I, I still don't see that. Um, I I think they're in good shape, the Celtics against the Sixers, if only because they have so much wing depth to throw at uh, a Maxi and Harden, nobody to, to guard uh, some of the guys on the Celtics. And so the wild card, and I know that I'm in the minority here is, is the nets. Like I, I have just been so reticent to write them off just because of the stark power that they have on that team, because Durant is so good. And if they have all these other shooters in order to make sense around him, that if they could just get out of their own way, that this would be a dangerous team. And they've showed that. We'll see what happens with Durant just injury-wise. But they're the one team where I'm like, I know most people would be like, oh, the Celtics got them in a series, yada, yada. I'm like, I don't want to face Kevin Durant in a seven-game series. So Celtics, I would favor. But I I think there's a lot out there that could trip them. Yeah. I'm, I'm leaning like towards the Nets too, just because the Durant thing scares me for this too, just because... He got embarrassed last year by Tatum. Like, he was really bad in that series. And Tatum, like, completely outplayed him. And he could do nothing offensively in that series, which is crazy to think about. Like, maybe one of the greatest scorers in the history of the game. So I think he's going to be so pissed off, like, if he gets the Celtics again. And, like, for some reason, I always, like, get nervous when they play uh, Curry. Not Steph Curry, Seth Curry. Like, this guy always (laughs) seems to hit big shots against the Celtics. But it is going to be interesting. They The Celtics pick, like, the worst year to be great in the East because, like, for the first time in forever, like the East is just like completely loaded when it was the West for so many years. All right. That is Justin Verrier from The Ringer, The Ringer NBA show. Thanks so much for taking some time, Verrier. We really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Great stuff there from Justin Verrier. So, all right, let's get to a couple of your calls. The number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. 
Brian, Darren from Chicago, hope you're well. Thanks for all the hard work. Um, I woke up this morning to the Trevor Story injury news. Made me want to put cigarettes in my eyes. Uh, there's really two scenarios here. One, the Red Sox knew about this injury, and two, they did not know. So let's talk about those. So if they knew about the injury uh, or the need for surgery, one, why why was it delayed until now? But two, why have they not addressed shortstop, second base, base depth um, behind Story, given the fact that they didn't, they, they didn't sign Bogarts, obviously. Haven't signed a single position player uh, at either one of those critical positions. Uh, currently, we're looking at a combination of Christian Arroyo and, I don't really know, moving Kike to short, uh, which would just destroy the outfield. Um, and the second possibility, they, they didn't know. Well, that's a big problem. Your players are your biggest assets. You need to know everything about them. You do, put, you do physicals for each player at, at the end of the year. Why do you not know? And how are you caught off guard? Why are you sitting out uh, the, Corre- the Correa sweepstakes, the Trey Turner sweepstakes? Um, obviously, why do you not sign Bogarts? Like, th- it's just unfathomable, unfathomable to think they've been this asleep at the wheel at these critical positions. Um, and they're really screwed. Like, they have absolutely no depth at second base or shortstop, not to mention star power, none of it. Um, I'm looking at the outfield. It's terrible, too. Um, as of right now, it's, if they don't move Kike, it's Kike Yoshida, who's not a good outfielder, and Verdugo, who's mediocre, um, with very little depth behind them. Ref Snyder and Duran don't do anything for me. So um, we're in trouble. This is going to be uh, a very, very long summer, and uh, this all the all the glory off the Devers signing, which which is table stakes. They, they needed to do it. Um, all the glory off that signing is gone. Um, Team's in, in big trouble, and uh, hopefully they've got some answers over the coming weeks. Thanks again. All right, so a couple of things that. Let me get to the start of your call there, the story situation. Okay, so they thought the elbow was good, okay? And this is a new injury, although he's had elbow issues. So you could say it was a ticking time bomb, and they should have realized at some point he was going to need some sort of surgery because, remember, that was an issue back when he was a free agent two years ago. We chatted with Bill and Hench about that the other day. But they did actually feel like he was progressing from that. Like, they thought his arm was getting better. Like, they felt like his progress this offseason is actually going well, and then they get the injury. So that is sort of how that thing played out, is it's they're saying it's a new injury. It, we get it. It's really not a new injury. But the point is, they didn't know that he was in a situation where the elbow was bad until what just transpired around Christmas time, right? That's when the injury came up, when actually he was getting ready for the season, gearing up, doing his arm program and all that. That's when he sustained this injury. Now, obviously, it's caused by the other injury because he's already been dealing with an elbow injury for the past couple of years. But they did actually think that he was going to be able to play short stuff for them. They felt good about where the elbow was. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Now, I will get into who I want the Red Sox to get in just a second here, but I do hate the move or hate the idea, unless something happens, of moving Kike to short because, to your point, it's a good point. The outfield defense is going to take a massive step back if Kike has to go to short. And Kike's a fine shortstop. I'm not saying that Kike is going to suck at short. He's fine as a shortstop. He's just an elite outfielder. So you lose that in the outfield. And based on the other guys you have out there, you have issues. I'll get back to the Red Sox in a second, but let's get to one more call. Hey, Brian. This is Joe, North Texas. Uh, Bill fumbled the OC this past season. No doubt about that. But with that being said, Mac Jones did not play very well whatsoever. Um, moving forward, is Mac Jones the guy? We don't know. He does have a bit of an attitude. He does, uh, he does like to pout a little bit and it's not a good look. We don't like it, especially, you know, seeing what we had the past 20 years. The O-line moving forward, I hope it's addressed in the draft because, man, it was pretty abysmal this year. Our tackle situation does not look good. Um, everybody talks about coaching. Uh, maybe the biggest loss of the year. Uh, aside from McDaniels, was no doubt Scar. I mean, look at the offensive line; it was terrible. And with that being said, uh, all the all the fans that are, are really down on Belichick, he's still the best coach in the league, no doubt. Um, he goes seven and nine the Cam Newton season. I don't know how many coaches do that. Last year was a jump forward um, with a rookie quarterback. So let's see how the off season shakes out, and uh, let's go patch. You know, let's find a good offensive coordinator. Let's let's build up the offensive line in the draft, and maybe. 
find a way to get an elite elite uh, weapon here. You know, we have Stevenson, who I think is a budding superstar. So uh, thanks for the pod, man. Have a good weekend. Appreciate it. Good stuff. Yeah. I mean, with Mac Jones, I'm with you. And I basically have said on multiple occasions now, I almost give him a mulligan for the season. It's it's not really like this year you could upgrade it to quarterback position anyway. You're 14th in the draft, so you're not getting one of the big three quarterbacks. And I know like we saw this stuff, but CJ Stroud may go back. I mean, give me a break. The guy's going to get so much guaranteed money when he goes in the top five. But nonetheless, you're not getting into that sweepstakes. It's not like you're going to go out there and get Derek Carr, so you do have Mac. And Bill basically wasted a season by making the dumbass decision to make Matt Patricia the play caller. Like, I would still, I would love to find out why he thought that would work. I really would like to know. Like, obviously now he's acknowledging it didn't work because his boss, Robert Kraft, is telling him, hey, you got to hire an offensive coordinator. Like, I really want to know why he thought that would work. Nobody else did besides Bill. But to the point about Bill still being the best coach in the league, I don't worry about Bill like game planning for a game from a defensive perspective, but and this is sort of this goes on his GM record more so than it does his coaching record. Now, he was not the best coach in the league this year. I'll say that like the situational stuff with his team was atrocious this year. The special team situation was a complete mess. But in terms of like if he's got the right people with him, if he actually has Bill O'Brien next year calling plays, I'll feel confident about Bill coaching in games. It's just like this year his team made dumb ass mistakes like and that goes on the coaching, right? Hunter Henry not getting out of bounds like that shit that never happened with the Patriots before in that Minnesota game like that type of stuff. The play at the end of the Raiders game, that stuff never used to happen to the Patriots at all. So that does sort of go on the coaching. And look, this is me not doubting Bill as a coach. It's more so me doubting Bill as an executive with some of the decisions he made. But I would not say that Bill is the best coach in the NFL right now. He's just he did not have a great year. I think we can all acknowledge that. All right. I do want to get to this, though, because Brady's getting ready for his playoff game on Monday night. And Ann Rappaport of the NFL Network had this. The Titans, the Raiders, and the 49ers are going to be interested in Brady this offseason. Okay, so first of all, Brock Purdy just threw for 332 yards, three touchdowns. He had a 131.5 passer rating in his playoff debut. The guy had a 107.3 passer rating this season. He has a cap hit south of $1 million next season. Unless this guy really shits the bed in the coming weeks here as the playoffs move on for San Francisco, I don't know how Brady fits there. And they also drafted Trey Lance. Like, Purdy was bad, and Grapple, of course, we know, has been dealing with the injury. Like, okay, maybe in that case, they go after Brady, but right now it feels like Purdy's good enough in that system with all the weapons they have. Why wouldn't they just roll it back with him when he's costing you nothing against the salary cap, right? The Titans, to me, like, I get the Vrabel connection. Tom loves Vrabel, but man, that team's not good anymore. A couple of years ago, it would have made sense when like A.J. Brown was coming off his nice rookie season, but now A.J. Brown's on the Philadelphia Eagles. Their leading receiver last year was Robert Woods. I know they drafted Traylon Burks. He only played in 11 games, but he's not exactly A.J. Brown. So I don't know what's enticing about that besides the fact that he'd go play for Vrabel. It's just not a very talented football team right now. The Raiders, I told you how I feel on that one. I would go there if I was Tom. Now, it depends on the family situation, of course, but Renfro, Devontae Adams, Waller, Josh Jacobs, sign me up for that if I'm Tom. But you look at the Raiders side of things, are we so sure, and my buddy Andrew Callahan brought this up, are we so sure the Raiders will want him? Now, they said they're going to have interest, apparently, according to Rappaport, but think about that. They're seventh overall. They may say, who's ever left of the big three quarterbacks, we could take that guy, or with the seventh overall selection, we could move up for a team that isn't drafting a quarterback and select the guy, the quarterback that we really want. They could trade up and get a quarterback, right? So instead of saying, hey, let's go with the 46-year-old, they could say, you know what? Maybe we draft a guy here. So I don't really see, like, I think the Raiders is a great fit for Tom. I don't know if Tom is a great fit for the Raiders. Okay, so outside of Tampa, I'm starting to wonder if the AFC East teams make the most sense, honestly, because we all know the connections that he had to Miami in the past. The one question there would be Tua. Like, if Tua is going to be playing next year and he's fine. Okay, then you're rolling with Tua if you're Miami. He was really good in that Mike McDaniel offense. But if Tua's dealing with something like and they're worried about his future because of the concussion situation, maybe they would consider Tom. That would be a scary team with him, Tyree Kill and Waddle. But I think in all likelihood, of course, Tua comes back next season. They go with Tua. But you know who I was thinking of that could be interesting on both sides of this? And I would hate this as a Patriots fan, the Jets. Like they need to win right now. That roster is good, okay? The defense is loaded. We saw it, right? And the offense, I mean, Sauce Gardner is the best corner in the NFL maybe already. He's a first-team All-Pro as a rookie. I mean, the defense is ridiculous, right? But the offense, they have some pieces. Garrett Wilson is a problem. We saw it in that game. Like, that guy is legit as a receiver. I really hope it's not the Jets from a Patriots perspective, but man, that would be a tremendous story 
But those would be my top two if I was Tom, the Raiders and the Jets. The Jets have a lot to offer in terms of you have a really good weapon offensively that's coming into his second year, like he's pre-prime right now. And then you have a really good defense. I mean, if I'm Tom, I would have to think about that. And they don't have an offensive coordinator right now, so you could pick whoever you wanted to take as your OC, if you will. And think about how that would kill Kraft. I mean, he would be so pissed off if he went to the Jets and Bill, for that matter. Nobody hates the Jets more than Bill. And they almost made the playoffs last year. And here were their quarterbacks, Zach Wilson, Mike White, and Joe Flacco. If I'm Brady, I would be thinking about the Jets. And the Jets are ready to win. Like, they want to win. Like, they've been linked to Derek Carr and all this. If I'm the Jets... Oh, man, that would be an incredible move from their perspective. I hope it doesn't happen. I'm just saying, like, that move makes a lot of sense from their angle. All right, time now for the greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. All right. Speaking of Tom, I'm going with our old buddy. Just simple money line bet, plus 120 on the Bucks to beat the Cowboys in that Monday night game. And I know the Bucks have been a mess at times this season, but the Cowboys have been a mess lately. <laughs> They've been bad lately. Tom's not going down in the wild card round, okay? No way, no how. That game he played against Carolina a couple of weeks ago, remember, they barely beat him. I get that. But Tom threw for 432. That pass he threw to Mike Evans, where Mike Evans wasn't open yet. He threw him open. Ridiculous deep pass down the field for Tom Brady. It made me sort of think like Tom can turn it up when he needs to. And I know that roster is incredibly flawed. That team is incredibly flawed. But if you look at Tom this season, 2.45 seconds to throw. That's the lowest time to throw in the entire NFL. Nobody else was south of 2.55. Okay, so Brady was the lowest by a wide margin. Brady's always close to the top of the league in this category, but I do wonder during the regular season, how much of that was self-preservation, right? Where it's like, hey, this play isn't going to work. I'm not going to try to keep it alive. In the playoffs, he's going to be willing to take more hits. So it's worth mentioning that I think that Tom could make a little run here. You look at all these other NFC quarterbacks, Tom's clearly the guy that I don't want to see that guy in the postseason. And I think he's going to be able to dice up this Cowboys defense as talented as it is. The Cowboys are the better team. Like, I'm not dismissing that, but I just think Tom's got something for this game coming up on Monday. And worth mentioning this, Tom has 35 playoff wins. I know you all know this and are aware of it, but it's worth mentioning since we're about to watch Tom on Monday night. Montana is second at 16. Tom's at 35. Montana's at six, 16. Think about how insane that is. And you know what I find now is, like, the whole dumbass debate is over, right? Like Brady won the divorce. So when he first left that COVID year, I don't know about you, but I had trouble pulling for him. Not that I held it against Tom for leaving, right? I wasn't mad at Tom for leaving. I totally understood why he left, but it was just weird, right? Like that's our guy. I don't want him to win somewhere else, right? Like I was jealous. That should be in a Patriots uniform. I don't want to see Tom win a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but now I'm like so over that part of it, right? We've already seen Tom win a Super Bowl. So I just want to see Tom play well. Like I'm hyped up to watch Brady play. I want to see him rip up the Cowboys. Like maybe it's just sad, but there is nothing I enjoy watching more in sports than Brady in the postseason. And in 2020, I could not enjoy that because he was doing it like the the wound was too fresh. I couldn't enjoy it then. But now like we're removed a couple of years. Like last year, I'm cheering for Tom in the playoffs. I wanted Tom to make a run to the Super Bowl again. Like I wanted him to beat that Rams team. And I think if that team is healthy, they probably beat the Rams, right? And Brady had like an MVP season last year. Easily could have won it over Aaron Rodgers. Now I just enjoy watching Tom play again. So I'm pumped up for this game Monday night. I like them to win that game. So I'll take Tom and the Bucks plus 120 on the money line. All right. A Red Sox note. Julian McWilliams from the Globe reported the Sox have interest in Adam Duvall. Okay, so put the metric man hat on for a little bit here. Played in just 86 games last year after wrist surgery, or I should say his season was cut short. He only played 86 games. All right, he's going to strike out a ton, 32.1%. That's 264th of 277 hitters, minimum 300 plate appearances. It's actually worse than Trevor Story. Better than Bobby D, though. Okay, Dahlbeck's uh, strikeout rate was over 34%. So he's better than Bobby D, okay? Okay, so he's a flaw player, but there was a clear priority this offseason for the Red Sox to go after guys that don't strike out a lot this offseason. Yoshida and Turner, of course, fit that profile. So I understand it's not what they've been doing this offseason, but this is why I like this. And some of this we know is out of necessity because of the Trevor Story injury, but two things he brings that the Red Sox desperately need. The first one is power, okay? He's not going to hit for average. 12 home runs last year, but remember, he only played, played in the 86 games he was banged up to. You go back to 2021. He was on the Braves World Series team, came over from Miami. He only hit 238, but you know what else he did? He hit 38 bombs. That was tied for 10th in Major League Baseball with Rafael Devers. And remember, the Red Sox in 2022, they were 20th in home runs with 155. Story hit 16. 
That was tied for second on the team, and he only played in 94 games. So you are banking on 25 home runs from a healthy story this year. Now, you'll get some of that power from Cassis as well, but you need to add power to the lineup still. You don't have enough punch in that lineup from a power perspective, and Duvall certainly will provide that. Yeah, you live with the strikeouts, but just like Renfro, take the 30 bombs. So if he's healthy, he's going to give you 30 bombs. This is a guy that I will go after in a second. Okay, so that's the first thing he helps you with is the power. The second thing, he is an elite defender in the outfield, elite defensive player. So the Red Sox outfield defense was an absolute joke last season. Minus 20 defensive runs saved. That was 26 in Major League Baseball. One of the worst outfield defenses in the sport. And if you watch the games, you know what I'm talking about. You don't even need the numbers. If you watch the games, you saw it. It was terrible. Okay. Duran, who actually may play now. I mean, Cora was talking about him the other day. Like, they don't have a lot of options right now. Minus seven defensive runs saved last year. 104th of 115 outfielders, minimum of 450 innings. Okay, so he would have been worse in Major League Baseball if he actually played... Like, if he was a qualified outfielder, he would have been the worst in the game last year. Verdugo was at minus five, 93rd. Verdugo put on a little weight. He was not in great shape. So that's another guy that was not good defensively last year. Yoshida, not known for his defense, right? Kike in 2021 was at plus 14 in terms of defensive run saved in the outfield. That was tied for six of all outfielders. Minimum 750 innings, okay? So the problem is, without story... If Kike goes to short, okay, and I mentioned this earlier when we're taking the calls, it's not that Kike won't be great at short, it's that the defense in the outfield is a disaster. Now, based on the personnel we just outlined, right, especially if it's Duran, Verdugo, Yoshida, that is a horrible defensive outfield, right? Duvall won the gold glove in right field in 2021 in the National League. He can play center as well. And look, he's not as elite at center as he is in right field, but look, I get it. Like sometimes when we look at awards in sports, the voters can get it wrong. They didn't get this wrong. Duvall in 2021, 19 defensive runs saved in the outfield, tied for first among outfielders. He was the best two years ago, 2021. So you lose an elite outfielder in Kike to short, you bring one in in Duvall. That's what you need to do. And look, there's a reason he's still out there. Like I said, a lot of strikeouts. He's coming off an injury. He's not a perfect player, but this is something the Red Sox need. And this is what I'll say about this. Stop being the interest kings. Like, all we hear, oh, the Red Sox are interested in this guy. The Red Sox are interested in this guy. Would you land one of these guys? I mean, we heard about Abreu. You didn't land Abreu. Just land one of these guys. And Haim owes it to the players, and he owes it to the manager to get a replacement for Trevor Story. And I know it's not exactly the same position, but you need to get somebody with some power, and you need to get somebody that can either play short at a high level or play outfield at a high level. Duvall can play outfield at a high level. Go get Duvall. The Red Sox need power. They need another outfielder. Go get one. Okay. Now on to the Bs. They're now 9-0 after losing this season. The loss on Thursday night. Their first regular season home loss in regulation since April 14th of 2022. That came to the Kraken. Think about how wild that is. And, you know, they got caught by that Kraken team that they've now won eight straight. It's a good team. That team is second in their division right now. They're coming on strong. And I did love that. Montgomery in that game Thursday pulled Olmark early with like six minutes left, give, gave the guys a chance, couldn't come through. But anyway, you lost to a team that is red hot right now. There's nothing wrong with that. And you respond last night with the win over Toronto. But that game against Toronto that we were just speaking of, that game was crazy last night. Two teams with obviously Stanley Cup aspirations, two teams with pressure on them, right? For different reasons. Toronto, because they got to exercise their playoff demons. And the Bruins, because we don't know if this is their last ride. And right away, you got the Felino and Simmons fight. I mean, it was awesome. It wasn't the best fight, but it was awesome that right away these guys are going at it. The pasta goal was nasty. You love seeing Greer get back, scoring his first game back. Marshawn to Bergeron, like how many times have we seen that? You got the game winner from Grizzlick. And that's a good Toronto team that you beat. And the Bees passed the test. But that would be a grind of a series. Like if we actually get that in the second round, that is going to be a, a grind to play against Toronto. Toronto's a, that's a good, solid Toronto team. They'll play again on February 1st. So looking forward to seeing that again. But that was a fun game. That was a very entertaining hockey game last night. So one housekeeping note on the Bees, they signed Pavel Zaka to a four-year extension through 2026-2027, $4.75 million cap hit annually. Okay, so I really like this for a few reasons. First, he's young, like he's coming into his prime, 25 years old. So first, before we even do that, think about that trade for Eric Halla, who was sort of overtaxed when you bumped him up to the second line last year. And Zaka is just a better fit for this Bruins team. Like if you just look at it, first of all, the versatility, like after the game last night, Montgomery was talking about the fact that he put him on the coil line last night, put Zaka on the coil line, I should say, 
for the matchup with Austin Matthews. They wanted him to be on the shutdown line last night, and he was. So very good defensive forward, as we all know, but he can drop down. He played on the coil line. And then when Krejci's out of the lineup, he bumps up, he plays center on the second line. So he can do so many different things. And here's another thing about this is you don't know if Krejci's done after this year. We don't know how much longer Bergeron is going to be playing. So you need depth there, right? And they bet on getting this player here in Pavel Zaka, getting him in their system, and he was going to be better here than he had been previously. And you look at it now, 25 points, career high is 36, so he's going to fly past that. He has 20 assists on the season. But think about this, 17 are five on five. That's the most on the team. He has the most five on five assists on the Boston Bruins. I mean, you wouldn't think about that when you think about how loaded this team is. Pavel Zaka has the most five on five assists on this team. So really, everybody. the reason I point that out is everybody plays well with him. He's tied for third in five-on-five points on the Bees behind only Pasta and Taylor Hall. Think about that. Nobody would think this, right? And he's he's ahead of Bergeron when it comes to that. I'm not comparing the players. I'm just saying, like, this guy's very valuable because he can play so many different roles and he fits in with everybody. So this is a really nice move by Don Sweeney and company to make sure to lock him up, not just because of how important he is to the team right now, but he's going to be important for the future, especially we don't know how much longer some of these guys are going to be here. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.